Welcome back, dear listeners. Thomas Small here with another episode of Conflicted alongside my old friend, Eamon Dean. Now, Eamon, I want you to cast your mind back, if you will, to the early 18th century, to a small village in the desolate, nedged mountains, desert of your home country, Saudi Arabia, to find a man whose radical preaching alienated many, but has stood the test of time. A man who laid the theological foundation for the rise of the all-powerful House of Saud. A man whose vitriolic pronouncements against anyone who disagreed with his interpretation of Islam continue to influence fundamentalist Muslims to this day. Eamon, I'm talking, of course, about... Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. A controversial figure, Eamon. I hope you and I don't... Uh, come to blows in this conversation. We have different views on the man. In, in the spirit of Christian charity, I'll start with you. <laughs> in, a, in brief summary, what does the name Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab mean to you? For me, he is not controversial, Thomas. For me, he is someone who made my faith so simple. Ah, a simplifier, a purifier, if you will, of Islam. Exactly. Well, we're going to tell the life story of this man, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. And yet the way that Ayman and I are going to tell the story is kind of diametrically <laughs> opposed. For Ayman, who reveres the man, bin Abdul Wahhab is, uh, is a good guy. He's the hero of the story. The way I'm going to tell the story <laughs> uh, is a little bit less uh, positive. I, I sort of think of bin Abdul Wahhab as the bad guy. Our friendship will, Eamon, survive it, I'm sure, but it's going to be a corker of an episode. Abs absolutely. <laughs> no question. <laughs> Continuing our exploration into the people who have set the historical template for fundamentalist Muslims today, this is the first of another pair of episodes on Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. Let's jump right in. You know what, Thomas, in 2009, I was addressing a counterterrorism conference where lots of those you know, experts or pseudo experts, most of them, to be honest. But anyway, <laughs> they were coming to listen to me talking about Al-Qaeda and terrorism at that time and the election of Barack Obama and all of these things. So after the event and after I gave my speech, in one of those ladies who work in this space in counterterrorism and counterviolent extremism came to me while I was having, you know, coke with some friends. And she told me, you know what, Mr. Dean, I really think that the greatest problem in the Sunni Muslim world are those wasabis. <laughs> And for me, it's like, <laughs> excuse me, what? <laughs> sort of samurai, samurai fundamentalists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, you know, for me, like, you know, I, it conjured into my mind the image of, you know, ninja salafists, you know. <laughs> so I said to her, excuse me, uh, who? Wasabis. Those like, you know, who believe in wasabism. And I like, okay, <laughs> you mean Wahhabis, you know. <laughs> she said, oh, oh, yeah, 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 Wahhabis, Wahhabis. Sorry about that. But anyway. I think it brought, you know, to my attention at the time that really, I mean, in, in, in the minds of many people, even if they don't know what Wahhabism is or who the founder of the movement is or when was it or where was it? And yet the narrative among the uh, industry experts at that time is that Wahhabism is at the core, you know, of the problem with extremism in the Muslim world that was driving terrorism. To prepare for this episode, I uh, read Cole Bunzel's excellent 
recently released book called Wahhabism, The History of a Militant Islamic Movement. And in it, he, he actually writes this. He says, Wahhabism has become the jihadi movement's ideological backbone. Wahhabi texts abound on jihadi websites and are frequently quoted by jihadi scholars and leaders who see themselves as the proper heirs of the Wahhabi tradition. There is, of course, more to jihadi ideology than the pre-modern Wahhabi tradition. The influence of certain Muslim Brotherhood ideas remains key. However, Wahhabism forms a crucial part of the ideology of modern Sunni jihadism. That, that is true, it must be admitted, right, Amin? I mean, when you were a young a jihadist, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was prevalent in the circles you were, you were frequenting. Of course, no question. He was as prevalent as Ibn Taymiyyah, you know, the scholar who we uh, discussed in the previous episodes. And this is why, for me, Muhammad Abdul Wahhab, he was ever so present even in my childhood. My fellow friends from Saudi Arabia will remember that when you go into the middle school, the book of Tawheed was part of the curriculum a book which was written by Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab as a statement of faith. And it is really a small text, but memorizing it was part of the curriculum in Saudi Arabia at that time. Yes, so obviously bin Abdul Wahhab's ideas were, you know, were formative for you. And you mentioned Ibn Taymiyyah, whom, as you said, yes, we, we've just covered in a couple of episodes. So, you know, dear listener, if you've been following along, we started this series with uh, Ibn Hanbal, Ahmed Ibn Hanbal. Then we moved on to Ahmed Ibn Taymiyyah. And today, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab. A story really of kind of ever-increasing radicalism and even militancy. This isn't to criticize or castigate. It's just sort of objectively the case. Each scholar built on the one before him and moved the dial a little bit further in the direction of fundamentalism. And, and in addition to their ideas, it's a story of progressive jihad. You know, in Ibn Hanbal's time, the, the jihad was against the Byzantine Empire. In Ibn Taymiyyah's time, the jihad was against the Mongols who at times were Sunni, at times were Shia, so fellow Muslims in a way, but very much the other. And as we'll see in, in Ibn Abdul Wahhab's time, the jihad took a further dimension and it became, to some extent, a jihad against fellow Muslims, which is part of that dial, you know, dialing up of fundamentalism. Indeed. And as we uh, progress through the episode, I want to offer in advance uh, an apology to all my fellow Salafists that I am going to use the term Wahhabi and Wahhabism not as a derogatory term, but as an academic term that has become more the mainstream uh, way of referring to Salafists who follow Ad-Da'wah Najdiya or the Najdi mission as the followers of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab would have called it at that time. I'm glad you brought that up. It is important to point out that that, that term Wahhabi was uh, leveled against Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his followers at the time by, by his enemies. Uh, so it began as a term, a derogatory term. In the eyes of Salafis today, it remains so. I will try as best I can to avoid the term, and I will use the term the mission if I can. So it's the, it's the, the mission. That's how they understood it. So to begin his story... Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was born in 1703 in Al-Uyayna, a very small town, really at the time, in what's called the Nejd. We probably, Eamon, should tell the listeners or remind the listeners about the Nejd, this area in Central Arabia, part, part of the, central, the great Central Arabian plateau. I mean, we're talking about really a backwater in the early 18th century, no question. Indeed, it was a backwater. But you see, like, I mean, the Nejd is... 
a large area, almost as big as Egypt, you know, as modern day Egypt. <laughs> wow. It is huge. It is a plateau. I think the average elevation there is about 400 meters above sea level. So it is dry. It is a desert with multiple oases appearing here and there. Now, Najd, you know, because of its harsh environment, is sparsely populated. However, it used to be always at the beginning of Islam, let's say like in about the 4th, 5th and 6th uh, and 7th century uh, Arabia, used to be the home of some of the most notable tribes in Arabia. The tribes which give birth to legends in the fields of poetry, in the fields of knighthood and chivalry. You know, it was really the place of Banu Hanifa, Banu Tamim, Ghatafan, Quda'a, uh, and many other of the tribes that we hear about. And this is why I would say that Najd, just like the Hijaz, were always part of the Arabian uh, legend and folklore and the lure where, you know, people always hear about these knights, you know, on, you know, the, their white horses and the beautiful Arabian horses, you know, straddling the desert. Yes, that is Najd. That's right. And at the start of the 18th century, when bin Abdul Wahhab was born, uh, the Najd lay on the fringes of the Ottoman world. The Ottoman Empire was the great hegemonic power at the time. But the Nejd, and this is incredibly important to remember, the Nejd was never conquered by the Ottomans, was never incorporated into the Ottoman state. And in fact, at the time bin Abdul Wahhab was born, the Nejd hadn't been properly incorporated into any larger imperial state structure since the 11th century. So not for 700 years had the Nejd been part of a larger state structure. This, I think, is key to understanding the political and social and cultural dynamics of the Nej. It was very riven. It was very politically unstable. It was quite tribal. It just did not have the benefits of a state. Just imagine Frank Herbert's dune, Arrakis, you know, this the, desert the, the, planet. The, the dune planet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the dune planet, you know, where Arrakis is such a uh, desolate place. But the reality is that Nejd was politically fractured and decentralized. And that's why they depended a lot on trading with the Ottoman Empire uh, outposts, such as Basra, Mecca, Medina, these places. So what can we say about Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab himself? Let's talk about his ancestry. He was from uh, the tribe, the Beni Tamim. Yes, he was from the clan of Al-Wahhaba, from the tribe of Beni Tamim. So he was a Tamimi. He, he comes from a good line of noble Arab tribes. The Al-Musharraf was his family line, yeah. and they it was a scholarly family. His father uh, actually was a judge of Al-Iyena, and his uh, grandfather was a well-known Hanbali scholar in Najd. Yes, like Ahmed bin Hanbal, like Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab came from a good, established religious family with a, 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 an exalted role in society. And if you remember, uh, dear listener, back to last season, early on in last season, Ayman and I discussed the difference within Arabia between al-Hadara and al-Badawa. So if you remember this, you know, we, ha we think quite popularly of Arabia as populated only by nomadic tribes living, you know, in the desert, moving around with camels and stuff. But that's not true. That's al-Badawa. That's one half of that society, Bedouin society. The other half, al-Hadara, were settled in towns like al-Uyayna. And Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his family definitely come from that al-Hadara side of Arabia. 
His mission, when it begins, was initially targeting the Hadara side of Arabia. So it's actually not a Bedouin phenomenon. It's a civilized, settled phenomenon. That's the world that uh, bin Abdul Wahab grew up in. Indeed, he was an urbanist. He wasn't a nomad, for sure. As you said, uh, Eamon, his father, Abdul Wahab, was uh, the chief jurist of al and he was a Hanbali, uh, just like Ibn Taymiyyah, just like, to some extent, obviously, Ahmed bin Hanbal. So we're still in the same line of Hanbali scholarship, of, of the world of Islamic Hanbalism. Tell us, Eamon, what Ibn Abdul Wahab's education would have been like as a child. Well, he was lucky in the sense that his father was a judge. Uh, therefore, he, his father was a learned man who taught him how to read and write from a young age. And then a child like that in a town like al they will have the Grand Mosque of the town. And in the Grand Mosque, they will have a zawiya, as they call it, like in a basically a, a corner. <laughs> a corner. Uh, and in that corner, young kids will come to study how to read and write, how to recite the Quran, to learn about Islamic history, theology, the Hadith. So the education was completely religious. There is no concept at the time of any form of secular education. And this is in line not just with its education, but with its entire world. I mean, the Nejd and the Islamic world more generally was totally saturated with religion. It was a religious world. So when they read the Quran, when they read the Hadith, when they heard about angels, when they heard about jinn, when they heard about destiny and prophecy, when they heard about the threat of hell, the, the, the promise of heaven, the reality of the divine judgment, these things are concrete. They're real. In addition to the commands of God, these aren't sort of like pieces of advice <laughs> that God says, if you'd like to follow this, you know, feel free. Not at all. You know, God's commands are absolute, total, and the failure <laughs> to fulfill them is, you know, is pretty, uh, you know, disastrous for people. So we're, we're really in a religious world. Now, Eamon, why, why was the Hanbali school so dominant in the Nejd? As we've said before, at that time, the Hanbali school was the, was the minority school within Islam. The other schools of, of law, the other, the Hanafis, the Malikis, the Shafis, they were much more prevalent. The Hanbali school was, was the, a minority in Islam in general, but in the Nejd, it was by far the majority school. Why, why was that? The prevalence of one particular school of jurisprudence over others was always subject to the prejudice of the leaders or the rulers of a specific territory. So, for example, if in the great Indian subcontinent, the Mughals were partial towards Hanafi, Hanafi would become the prevalent school of jurisprudence. In North Africa, the uh, Muravids, you know, or the Murabitin, Yusuf bin Tashifin and their founders, I mean, they became more partial towards Maliki school of uh, jurisprudence. So the North Africa now is Maliki. If you look at Saudi Arabia right now, it's Hanbali. But next door, Bahrain, and next door, Abu Dhabi, you know, which is part of the Emirates, actually is uh, Maliki. So that is why it is important to understand that it's according to the persuasion, the persuasion of the rulers of the day. Uh, Najd more or less became Hanbali because it was adopted by nearby schools in Basra and other uh, centers of learning such as Al-Ahsa. And as a result, the Hanbali school of jurisprudence became the dominant in Najd, not by design, but by accident. A salient point here is that there were no schools of higher education in the Najd. 
Nejdi scholars, if they wanted really to get the highest, if they wanted their authority to be stamped with you know proper authority, they'd have to leave the Nejd and travel abroad. Uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab was you know did the same thing. Indeed, first of all, we have to understand that from young age he showed promise. He was sharp, definitely. He had a clear mind. He had a photographic memory and was able to memorize the Quran by the age of 16 and lots of the books of Hadith. And also at the same time, he started to impress with his uh, debating skills and his firebrand argumentative skills. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, as a teenager, he must have had some pretty, uh, you know, formative debates and conversations with his brother, Suleiman. Uh, this is to foreshadow Indeed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> an episode in his life down the line. But Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab had a brother, Suleiman, who, like him, you know, became a jurist, uh, received a, a first-class education. Uh, so Muhammad and Suleiman together were growing up in these schools. And then Muhammad launched out into the great unknown. Where, what, what cities did he go visit to learn of the higher sciences? One of the uh, cities he did travel to was Mecca in order to perform the Hajj and also to learn at the hands of great scholars, including uh, Muhammad Hayat Sindi. Muhammad Hayat Sindi was a Hanafi and was a Sufi to some extent. And Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab would have studied alongside uh, some other uh, scholars like Sanani and Ashami, who would later become uh, Zaydis and would have been uh, preaching, you know, uh, and judging according to Zaydi, kind of mild Shia persuasion in Yemen. So this is just to show basically the fact that he wasn't against the idea of learning from scholars who might have different persuasion from him. He just was someone who just wanted to learn. He had the thirst for learning and knowledge. And then he went to Medina, where in Medina, this is where the influence of Ibn Taymiyyah comes in handy. Haha, <laughs> Ibn Taymiyyah. <laughs> Absolutely. So he studied with Sheikh Ali Afendi at Daghestani at Dimashqi. At Dimashqi, uh, dear listener, that means this guy's from Damascus. Absolutely. Where Ibn Taymiyyah lived and died. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, at Daghestani, Dimashqi was pretty much influenced heavily by Ibn Taymiyyah's brand of Salafism. And he imparted that and imprinted that on his uh, young, brand new student, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab. Muhammad Abdul Wahab spent a considerable time with uh, Dagestan and Dimashqi in Medina. And then after that, he traveled to Basra. Yeah, in Basra. So this is, I want to ask you about Basra. So he spent most of his, let's say, uh, study abroad period in Basra. And in addition to the Sunni Hanbali schools there, Basra was, of course, a great and important center of Shia Islam. And a, a lot of the sources suggest that it was there while he was living there that he first, in a, in a real way, came face to face with the practice of Shia Islam, which to him, as a Nejdi uh, growing up in a Hanbali environment, would have seemed very foreign uh, and in fact, very troubling. Do you think, Eamon, that that exposure to Shia Islam, their practices, especially of, of praying for intercession at the grave of descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, and in general, the Shia predilection for bestowing sainthood upon their imams and other such people and, and invoking them, would have really influenced Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab as he developed as a thinker? Uh, there is no question. It was in Basra where he absolutely started this thinking of, well, you know, this is not what I was taught that Islam was about. He encountered what he believed to be heresies. This is when he started to think that this is not Islam, this is shirk. Shirk, yeah. 
sort of idolatry as the association of others apart from God with divinity. Exactly. Idolatry, yeah. Let's call it idolatry. Idolatry, yeah. So he believed that, you know, Shia Islam is just, you know, another form of idolatry being, you know, given Islamic wrapping. You'll like this, uh, uh, Eamon. Uh, Bunzel, in his book, Wahhabism, he, um, he quotes uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab from, uh, from his sort of memoirs, and he says this about his time in Basra. Ibn Abdul Wahhab said, Some of the idolaters of Basra would come to me, now he means Shia, and relate their specious arguments to me. As they were seated before me, I would say, Worship in its entirety is not valid, but to God alone. All of them would be astonished, and not a mouth would make a sound. I like that that anecdote because you know you ask you have to ask yourself why were they astonished? Were they astonished because of the power of his preaching, or were they astonished because they thought, "Oh my God, we disagree. We don't know what to say." You know, but certainly this preaching was provocative in Basra. His preaching was provocative. In fact, it became so provocative that you know they complained to the governor of Basra about him. And, you know, they went to the governor of Basra and told him, you have to kick him out, you have to get rid of him. The governor of Basra, as well as the judge of Basra, both of them were Sunnis and were appointed by the Ottomans. So they yeah, were... Yeah, Basra was in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, that, so it was, it was part of the empire. Indeed. And they didn't give, you know, a damn really about, you know, what the Shia of Basra were thinking. He remained for a few years after that, after that incident with the Shia. But however, the governor and the judge were changed. There is a new governor and uh, judge. And at the same time, Najdi traders came to Basra. They recognized him. They said they warned the new governor, be careful, this guy will start to destroy your shrines and will call for the destruction of the uh, holy shrines. So they kicked him out. In fact, he was warned by the people in Basra that if you don't leave today, you will be dead. He left with his own clothes and only by a kind shepherd, like, you know, basically who took him, you know, in a Zubair and from there uh, gave him enough, like, you know, food to go all the way to Al-Ahsa. It's not clear exactly from the sources when bin Abdul Wahhab left Basra and returned home to the Nej. Probably when he was in his early 30s, yeah. he returned to the Nej, specifically to the town of Huraymila, where his father, who you know had, had was now chief Qadi. So his father had, in the meantime, had moved to Huraymila, became the chief judge of the town, and his son, Muhammad, joined him there. At first, bin Abdul Wahhab kept his head down. It's likely that he didn't want to upset his father or provoke his father. Given what would happen down the line with his brother, Suleiman, it's possible that uh, Muhammad's father would not have appreciated Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's interpretation of Islam. Nonetheless, for some reason, he didn't preach openly again until his father died. And his father died in 1741 when bin Abdul Wahhab was 38. And at that point, bin Abdul Wahhab again began to preach openly, and it is at this point that he wrote what would be his most influential text, the book you mentioned earlier, Eamon, the one that was part of your own education as a child in Saudi Arabia, uh, Kitab al-Tawheed, the book of monotheism, the book of, of declaring God's unity, Tawheed. Tell us a bit more about this book. I actually read it this morning, Eamon, to prepare for this uh, chat. It's not a long book. You can read it in a single sitting. It, it, it's a weird book. It doesn't contain arguments. It doesn't argue its case. It just presents passages from the scripture and the hadith put in a certain order, followed by bullet points, really, of pronouncements or of topics or of affirmations. These are things we must affirm. There is no rational argument involved, however. It just states it. 
Is that a, a fair way of characterizing the book, Eamon? Exactly, because at the end of the day, like you know, it is a statement. Kitab al-Tawheed, the book of divine unity, is in itself a statement. You know, a statement doesn't have to be that rational, but because from his point of view, this is the equivalent of stating the bleeding obvious. You know that <laughs> there is only one God, and that He is a supreme being, and that this is what we need to know about Him. So, well, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever perused, you know, Twitter, uh, Islamic or even Christian Twitter. You know, there are people who believe that the, uh, the 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 straightforward, literal declaration of truth, the bleeding obvious, is the religious way. I think it's part of that fundamentalist mentality Indeed. that we talked about. And reading uh, the book of monotheism, Kitab al-Tawhid, uh, Bin Abdul Wahab's book, you get the sense that. He definitely had that character trait. But you you also feel that it's not really a book that's meant simply to be read. I mean, I feel, and a lot of modern scholars agree with this, that it's more like a textbook. It's sort of a book that someone is meant to carry with them to a kind of a lesson. And the topics in the lesson would be expanded upon by bin Abdul Wahhab himself. So it's almost like saying, well, we'll talk about this, we'll talk about this, we'll talk about this. So presumably in his actual teaching, Bin Abdul Wahhab did engage in argumentation and some sort of rational proof or whatever of his, his teachings. He can't simply have just stated things like that. Well, I tell you something. The reason why it was written this way, because he was dealing with Najdis. At that time, the prevalent condition was illiteracy, not literacy. And therefore, he needed a book that was easily read to people in bullet points, in statements, littered with supporting text from the Quran and the Hadith that is easy to memorize. Remember, I memorized it when I was young, you know, and, you know, all of my fellow classmates like memorize it and it's easy to memorize, you know. And so the whole idea is that he wrote this book deliberately to be short, precise, concise statement of divine unity. That's it. And to be easily remembered. From the very beginning, we see how bin Abdul Wahhab um, was different from bin Taymiyyah. So Ibn Taymiyyah was an incredibly verbose writer. He yeah. never tried to write succinctly in this way to appeal to the average person, to kind of indoctrinate them or to convince them to join a cause in that way. Bin Abdul Wahhab was much more, really much cleverer in launching a mission that would appeal to the masses by appealing to them directly in this simple, straightforward, easily memorizable way. Now, he didn't initially have a huge amount of success, not in Haremila at any rate. Uh, while he was there, he survived an assassination attempt. It's not clear what exactly happened. Haremila was n notoriously politically unstable. Bin Abdul Wahhab may have got enmeshed in that in some way. It definitely proved to him to be the wrong place to launch his mission you know, and, and what he needed, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, Eamon, what he really needed and knew he needed was political backing. So having survived uh, an assassination attempt in Haremila, he moved back home to his hometown of Al-Uyayna. And this is where we're going to take a quick break. Having survived an assassination attempt, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab returns to his hometown of Al-Uyayna and is going to try to find a political backer to support his mission. We'll be right back. Right, we're back. We're telling the life story of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, 
at the time that we left him, he just survived an assassination attempt uh, and therefore decided to up sticks and leave Al-Huraymala and move to Al-Uyena, where he grew up. His uh, reputation was already spreading. He'd written his book of monotheism. He'd written a number of letters, epistles, which were circulating around the Nejd. Some of them had made their way to Basra, where Hanbali scholars there were reading them. Most of them at this point with some alarm, and he began to attract a certain amount of criticism from his fellow scholars. In fact, the scholars in Basra, having read his letters, now, and this is important, not just the Book of Monotheism, which as we said before is, was, is brief and concise and possibly you know, more or less uncontroversial, a, a straightforward statement of Islamic monotheism. But his letters his, in his essays that, he w- that were also circulating were much more detailed and, and much more sort of, let's say, severe. And the, the scholars in Basra called him Khalifat Iblis, <laughs> Satan's <laughs> deputy. Uh, and this, this is because in their mind, at least, bin Abdul Wahhab was denouncing in his letters really normative Islamic practices. The same things that Bin Taymiyyah was complaining about in his day, things like praying to the dead, uh, frequenting shrines in order to pray to the dead, invoking saints. All of this was shirk. All of this was idolatry in Bin Abdul Wahhab's mind. But in the mind of his fellow scholars, including Hanbali scholars, this was not shirk, or at least not shirk to the degree that Bin Abdul Wahhab believed it. So, Amy, why do you feel that Bin Abdul Wahhab felt so strongly as he did that the Muslim world had descended into shirk. Okay, I will argue from his point of view, and I will be the devil's advocate here. (laughs) So I'm going to play the devil's (laughs) advocate. From his mind is that I am reading the Quran. I've learned the Quran by heart as a young Muslim growing up in Najd. And the Quran tells me, worship none but God. You don't read anything about saints. It says to you, pray only to God. I don't see anything about graves or shrines. It tells you that the dead cannot help you. That's what the Quran says very clearly. And yet people go and seek help from the dead. So for him, he sees a big contradiction between what he is reading in the text and what he is seeing outside. And then he realized that He is reading the story of the golden calf, you know, and the Israelites, you know, after they have been saved, you know, from uh, Pharaoh and his army, and they are there in Sinai, you know, still seeking to some extent a manifestation, a worldly manifestation of the divine in the calf. So, you know, he says, again, we are back to the days of Jahiliyyah, or what he calls it, like, I mean, the age of ignorance. Yeah, later on he would write uh, in in a letter, this is Ibn Abdul Wahhab wrote this, uh, what most people of the earth profess from east to west is idolatry, is shirk. That which is being performed in the Hejaz, in Basra, in Iraq, and in Yemen, this is shirk. He became convinced that he was living in a time like the prophet's own time where everyone around him was an idolater and he needed to (laughs) launch a mission inviting them to join Islam. A very weird position for a Sunni Muslim to adopt in a world in which everyone around him was a Muslim. And the Sunni at the time, especially in Najd, while Ibn Taymiyyah would pronounce takfir on certain acts 
not on people. He would describe an act as a shirk, but he wouldn't call the people idolaters. So he would basically call, oh, this is an act of idolatry, but he wouldn't describe the people as pagans or idolaters. He will call them, you know, sinful Muslims. That's it. Like, you know, he wouldn't excommunicate them from the zone of Islam. However, for some reason, Ibn Abdul Wahhab took this, you know, to a greater extent where he started to pronounce takfir not on the act, but on the general population that were practicing this act. I'm glad you brought up Ibn Taymiyyah because uh, Bin Abdul Wahhab's detractors amongst the Sunni scholars who began to argue against him, they brought up Ibn Taymiyyah a lot. Uh, even the Hanbali ones for whom Ibn Taymiyyah was you know, not a hated figure, they, they accepted him as a revered thinker, uh, though they, they, they were always slightly cautious about him because they knew the power of his preaching, the power of his rhetoric could incline people towards radicalism. But the scholars who encountered bin Abdul Wahhab's teaching and were rather shocked by it, they kept saying, this man has, is following in the footsteps of Ibn Taymiyyah. He is slavishly adopting the perverted doctrines of Ibn Taymiyyah. So Ibn Taymiyyah in their minds had mostly good things to say, but some bad things to say, all about shirk, all about what constitutes shirk and how to respond to shirk, and bin Abdul Wahhab took it even to the next level. Now, when we left him, he'd just survived an assassination attempt. He'd moved to Al-Uyayna, and he was in pursuit of political backing. Explain in general, uh, Eamon, why someone like bin Abdul Wahhab would seek a political backer. Well, he would be following in the same footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, because at the end of the day, when the Prophet Muhammad found that he was prevented from fulfilling his mission by his tribe, Quraysh in Mecca, he started to seek the protection of other tribes. You know, he started with Taif, they rejected him, but then the people of Medina accepted him. And so the whole issue is that I am on a mission, Muhammad and Wahhab, just like his namesake, the Prophet Muhammad, like in basically he believed that he is on a mission and I can't fulfill my mission if I am to be hounded, persecuted, and possibly killed by assassins. I need someone to protect me. And only with that power, I could actually achieve the goals of my mission. I'm so glad that you brought up the Prophet Muhammad in his life, because in the next episode, we're going to talk at length about the ways in which Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab felt that his life mirrored the Prophet's life and how important that was to bin Abdul Wahhab. And yes, you're totally right. Like the Prophet who was forced to flee from his hometown of Mecca to Medina to receive sanctuary, bin Abdul Wahhab would, would find himself forced to flee to find sanctuary. Ironically, he first hoped he might find it in his hometown. Al-Uyayna, and the man who he first hoped might offer him the political backing and protection he needed was a man called Uthman bin Muammar. He was the ruler of Al-Uyayna, which was the chief town in the Nejd at the time. So he was the strongest ruler in the Nejd. So bin Abdul Wahhab was like, great, this is exactly what I, what I need. And even better, quite quickly, bin, uh, bin Muammar, the leader of Al-Uyayna, lent bin Abdul Wahhab his support. To the extent that bin Abdul Wahhab even married Uthman bin Muammar's aunt. So in the Nejd, that would have been a sign of a very close political alliance. So bin Abdul Wahhab must have really thought, okay, I've, I've got what I need here, a political backer 
who's supporting my mission, and indeed he did support his mission, and he lent his mission sort of real support, which led to an initial quite notorious event in the, in the minds and memories of Muslims, and at the time, a shocking event, when uh, Uthman bin Muammar and Ibn Abdul Wahhab together, they destroyed a tomb, a tomb that at the time was considered to be very sacred, the tomb of Zayd bin al-Khattab, the brother of the second caliph of Islam, Omar. Now, Ayman, tell us this story and explain why this would have been shocking to Muslims at the time and remains so in the memories of the people who don't like Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab to this day. Zayd ibn al-Khattab is one of the Prophet's early disciples. Uh, his brother would later become the second caliph, Umar ibn al-Khattab. And Zayd was uh, killed during the wars of the apostasy in Najd, which happened just months after the Prophet Muhammad's death. Yes, these are known as the Ridda Wars, the yes. wars of apostasy. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so therefore this is why his tomb is in Najd. In later years, it became a place of reverence, uh, of uh, worship, and people were coming to seek blessings. Sick people were coming seeking healing, you know, women coming to seek divine help to get married and pregnant. Uh, and of course, there were some, you know, shrine uh, servants who would basically get the donations from the people and all of that. So for Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, for him, this is idolatry. You know, this is not exactly a place of worship that was uh, ordained by God. Therefore, it must go. Not ordained, must go. That's it. This is the attitude that he adopted. When Uthman bin Muammar, the chief of Ayayna, when he showed up at uh, the shrine of uh, Zayd bin al-Khattab with his men, and of course with them, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab himself, and they announced their intention to destroy the shrine. They were evacuating everyone from inside and they were telling them to stand back. So the uh, those caretakers, the priests, you know, those who are serving the shrine, they were warning everyone there, bin Muammar and bin Abdul Wahhab, they were warning them, God will smite your hands. God will strike you down, will paralyze you if you dare to do anything. Ibn Abdul Wahhab noticed that bin Muammar's men were hesitant. However, he took the shovel and started attacking uh, the shrine and started with the dome. Uh, he climbed to the dome and started destroying it from the top. And of course, the, you know, the Ibn Muammar men, when they saw that nothing was happening to the guy, he was just looking and laughing at the priests of the shrine. They joined in. And in no time, it was leveled to the ground. And they made sure that the original grave would be according to what Ibn Abdul Wahhab described as the sunnah, as the hadith. Just two hands, you know, if you look at your own palm, two palms above the ground, that's it. This is how a grave should be raised above the ground. That's it. This is the sunnah. And of course, this sent a shockwave across all of Najd and beyond all the way to Mecca and Medina and the Hijaz. The shrine of Zayd ibn al-Khattab was destroyed. And it wasn't, they didn't stop at that. The trees. Yeah, that's true. There was also a grove of sacred trees in the, in the area that they chopped down. Trees where women, just like uh, to the grave that they destroyed, uh, women would go hang little strips of paper or whatever, or strips of things on the tree, pray to the tree, the spirit of the tree, in order to get them pregnant and stuff. A, a, you know, this is a, a very much more straightforward form of m maybe pre-Islamic uh, superstition that they were still practicing there. And Uthman bin Muammar and bin Abdul Wahhab chopped down the, the grove of trees, 
And again, you know, there was no divine retribution <laughs> from heaven. So they must have felt, uh, you know, uh, uh, buoyed up by conviction that they were on the right path. It reminds me, this story reminds me of stories from the Protestant Reformation in Europe when men like John Knox in, in Scotland, for example, were going around, you know, inveighing against statues in, in cathedrals, inveighing against bishops, inveighing against the cult of saints and knocking down statues, knocking down whole cathedrals, uh, digging up the relics of saints, burning them, destroying them. So it, it brings to mind that early modern movement in Europe. Uh, and, you know, I'm an Orthodox Christian, as you, as you know, Eamon. Uh, that kind of stuff uh, rather upsets me. I don't like the idea of it at all. As it would have upset a lot of the locals in the Nejd uh, in the early 18th century or the more, more like the mid-18th century. Actually, it's beyond Najd, actually. It's beyond Najd that news reached all the way to the ruler of Al-Ahsa. Which is on the east coast of the current Saudi Arabia, along the Persian or Arabian Gulf. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> the great region of Al-Ahsa, which at that time claimed some overlordship over Najd, very, very loosely organized. But they claimed to have overlordship over the Najd and to be able to dictate terms to the Umarah, the emirs of the Najd. Indeed. Uh, so, yes, as you say, in Al-Assa, they were like, what the hell is going on? The, the tomb of the, of the brother of the second caliph has been destroyed by these maniacs. And indeed, even Amir Al-Assa, the powerful leader of that huge oasis emirate, sent a very strong worded letter to Uthman bin Muammar saying that if you don't kick Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab and get rid of him, I'm going to cut your trade revenues from al -Ahsa. At the beginning, Uthman bin Muammar refused. He would stood his ground and said, no, I'm not going to kick Muhammad bin Wahhab. However, a delegation from Najd went again to al and asked its powerful ruler, to send another letter and another threat. And this time it worked. It did. There, this is all wrapped up in another story from that time in bin Abdul Wahhab's life. When a confessed adulteress, so a woman who committed adultery, confessed to it, was stoned in Al-Uyayna. This also sent shockwaves around the Nejd and beyond because, you know, Obviously, the execution method of stoning to this day is very controversial in Islam. Uh, you yourself, Eamon, have said on this podcast that stoning is not part of the Sharia. It's a misinterpretation of spurious hadith. And yet in Uyena, this happened. This woman who confessed to adultery uh, and in a way must have known that she was going to be at the receiving end of some pretty harsh uh, discipline was stoned. And, and as a result of this, in addition to the previous destruction of the tomb and the, and the trees and the, and the basic tenor of bin Abdul Wahhab's preaching, the leader of Al-Assa, the leader of the Bani Khalid tribe there, ordered bin Muammar to expel him from Al-Uyayna, and he did. One funny thing is that later on, Salafi historians in the Nejd, those who followed bin Abdul Wahhab, the Wahhabis, let us say, they actually said that um, the leader of Al-Assa uh, was offended by the story of the stoning of the adulteress because he himself was a notorious fornicator. Uh, and he and he just, he felt personally offended that uh, such a, an extreme punishment was meted out to, to someone accused of fornication. However, no, however, there is actually another uh, reason. Historians, later historians, actually realized that she was related to him. 
She was related to the leader of Alassa. Yes. Oh, even worse. Oh, Ben Abdul Wahab chose the wrong woman to stone. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Maybe he was stoned when he did it. But nonetheless... Uh, <laughs> oh, haram. How, da- how dare you cast such calum- calumny across a, such it, a wonderful man? It's an, it's an innocent joke. But nonetheless, <laughs> you know, I would reiterate here again my own personal belief that the Quran from cover to cover does not contain one single verse that says that there is a stoning for any crime whatsoever. It goes to show you that bin Abdul Wahab's mentality, his ideas were not informed strictly by a literal interpretation of the Quran. There was something else underlying it, the Hadith, but also a mentality. Uh, you know, he was making what we would think of as moderate Islam tantamount to apostasy. This wasn't entirely new. As we've said, bin Taymiyyah had argued something similar, but Ibn Abdul Wahhab was expanding its scope as a result, he was kicked out of Al-Uyayna. The question is, where would he go? We're going to leave this episode uh, there because there's a huge turning point around the corner in bin Abdul Wahhab's life, and not just his life, but in the history of the world, which we will, of course, discuss in our next episode. But before we go, I do want to just discuss with you, Eamon, this question. So in Bunzel's book, this great book, it's recently uh, released – It's called Wahhabism. You really should read it, everyone. It's a great book. Uh, He writes, Ibn Abdul Wahhab's ambition was revolutionary. He was seeking to demolish the religious status quo in Nejd and reestablish in its place a commitment to true Islam as he understood it. And Bunzel calling Ibn Abdul Wahhab a revolutionary made me think about this idea that we've been discussing the radical mentality, the fundamentalist mentality, because moving our view to the present day and actually away from the Muslim world and towards the West, we see movements uh, around animated by a similar spirit, looking around and seeing that everything about Western society is tainted by things like, you know, racism, colonialism, you know, a a kind of resurgence of of radical left-wing, certainly not religious, quite secular ideology, but animated by a a revolutionary spirit that seeks to destroy the status quo and replace something pure in its place. You know, it's funny because it it, it gets back to personality, to mentality. I feel that bin Abdul Wahhab had this personality in spades. (laughs) And uh, if you know, if we if we return to the Lebowski, (laughs) the Lebowski principle of exegesis, you know, you're not wrong, you're an asshole. To me, bin Abdul Wahhab inclines towards, you're not right, you're just an asshole. (laughs) But I I know, Amy, that you disagree with that. (laughs) I I disagree to the sense that I believe he was misunderstood and that he was the product of his time. He was brilliant, but unfortunately, just like a knife, he had two edges. Mm. Well, we are going to hear all about the two edges of the knife called Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in our next episode when, uh, you know, out of the blue, a knight in shining armor comes to his rescue. And of course, I'm talking about the founder of the notorious and all-powerful dynasty, the House of Saud. Stay tuned.
A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MHConflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle. <laughs>